we have this natural experiment, um, and, and because it's pretty persistent, usually like the five basis point pool has done better over the past hour. It's probably going to keep doing better over the next hour. We can um, we can just toggle the fees in our pool to reflect which pool's outperforming. So so theoretically, with a pretty good chance, right, you get the best of both worlds, right? Because because fees adjust over time. So so we kind of call that a, a price discovery vampire attack. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. This show is made possible thanks to our fantastic sponsor, the Atom Accelerator. If you are a developer looking for a home in the industry, the Atom Economic Zone welcomes you. But you will hear more about the Atom Accelerator a little bit later in the show. Today is June 26th, and we have a great interview lined up with Doug Colkit, the founder of Ambient. It's a new DEX that's aiming to reimagine the active AMM. But before we get into the interview, as always, we're joined by Effort Capital and Westy to discuss the latest market happenings. Westy, why don't I kick it over to you for your hot seat or cool throne? Yeah, I can start us off. So I'm not sure if this is a hot seat or cool throne yet. We have a lot of time for it to, to figure that out. But basically, it's a new proposal to make the current Polygon proof of stake chain into a Validium. Um, so for those that need a refresher, Validium is similar to a ZK rollup where proofs are sent to the L1 for verification. However, the transaction data itself is not actually posted, but is instead kept on some like internal data availability layer. Um, this means like a lot higher scalability and lower transaction fees because you don't need to pay to store that data anywhere, but it sacrifices a level of security and censorship resistance because if that data availability layer gets compromised, you know, whoever's in charge of those funds can just like freeze them and not allow uh, users to access it. And the reason why I'm sort of back and forth between uh, whether this is a good thing or a bad thing is because, you know, I think it does solve a lot of the issues that they've had in the proof of stake chain, where they've had a, a ton of reorgs basically every day. And this sort of solves that issue where they're no, long, no longer are required to look at a validator set for consensus. But I'm also like pretty cautious about having sort of like a generalized chain with a lot of native value and native applications, sacrificing a level of censorship resistance and security and leaving that power to potentially uh, like a few people. And that, that was another thing uh, with the proposal itself is that there was no detail into how the data availability uh, layer would be managed or what that would look like. And so we don't know if that's gonna be through a committee or maybe they're outsourcing that to avail. We, we don't know the details. And so there's a lot we need to see. I think it's gonna take, I think eight to 12 months for them to develop this thing. Um, so yeah, I, I wonder what you guys think about them uh, switching the proof of stake chain to the uh, Validium. I think it's a good move personally. I mean, you're if you look at the chain today, you're relying on a whitelisted validator set. So, I mean, I don't think anything really changes from Polygon as a side chain to Polygon as a Validium. Um, and I also think they did mention in the blog post that Mahalia posted on the forum that the Matic token would be used to secure the data. Uh, and I don't think a veil is actually even under Polygon's umbrella anymore. And that was a really under looked at thing, actually. I feel like no one even talked about that, but I'm pretty sure Polygon's like completely removed from a veil. So I don't even think they have really their own DA layer. So I do wonder if that's kind of their plan for Matic is to have like a DA layer that kind of starts with the proof of stake chain in the form of a Validium. And then it kind of exports its services to other chains in the future. Not really sure, but... I think in general, it's a good move. I personally use Polygon a good bit, regrettably, and I absolutely hate the experience. So <laughs> anything they could do to make that chain actually work, I'm all for it. Anything for your precious unicorns. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I guess I'm just confused by the end game of Polygon here. Like, 
it seemed I like I thought for sure they would have been leaning into the ZKVM and like just focused on promoting the popularity and usage of that. And if not, just transporting everything over from the proof of stake chain. Like why why do we still have that chain? If the end goal is not to be, you know, surely the end goal is not a validium. So like I guess this is another short term solution. And to Westy to your point, like, yeah, it's probably an upgrade, but it still doesn't feel like it's the the end game. So I don't know. It, it's interesting to see. Uh, they're like they seem like they're focusing on too many things at once. To be completely honest, like I don't know. They and now their competitors are doing really aggressive things and like promoting their brands. Like the OP stack starting to take off. Arbitrum's been pretty up and to the right in terms of like ecosystem growth recently. Um, you got uh, zk Sync that pu- just uh, pushed live the zk stack like everyone else seems to be really honing in on their expertise and then polygons just got like fingers in random jars like totally kind of lost that's just the way uh, i'm perceiving it at least yeah i think it's also pretty annoying how they're doing this whole announcement this whole transitionary period um like why can't why can't you just say like here's our end game here's our roadmap like when ethereum puts out a roadmap it's extremely detailed you know what you're getting you'll read like a, a 10,000 word essay by Vitalik, you'll probably have to take a few days to actually digest it. Like Polygon's breaking up. They have this whole Polygon 2.0 vision. That's, uh, you know, a complete rethink of their architecture, complete rethink of Maddox, uh, you know, the tokens um, utility in the entire Matic or Polygon ecosystem. And they're kind of doing like announcements of announcements over like the next four to five weeks. Um, Obviously I'm sure there's some type of marketing reason to do that. They're trying to like dominate the social media airwaves. So I understand that, but at the same time, it's like you just tell us what your vision is. Like, can we get actual a better user experience on on uh, in the proof of stake chain, or at least in the Polygon ecosystem? Um, I mean, I'm sure it's great that they're trying to iterate on their product, that they're trying to you know push this the zk narrative because ultimately it sounds like the end game for on chain infrastructure is uh, zero knowledge proofs. But I would just like to see like in one cohesive, one nice blog post, like what are you doing? What is Polygon 2.0? Yeah, the other thing here is if you look at market caps between Optimism, Arbitrum, and Polygon, Polygon is insanely expensive. Arbitrum's around one, one and a half billion. Uh, Optimism's about 800 million. And then Matic, Polygon, is trading at around six, six or so billion. So it's about, it's just way overvalued from a market cap perspective. But if you start looking at FDVs, it's very in line with Optimisms. And Arbitrum is actually the one that stands out looking expensive. But I don't know, just another another observation is it's uh, trading quite richly. Yeah, Sean Rui there, I think that's a pretty good point on the valuation. Um, but I guess that's good if they're going to be using a data availability committee with the Matic token as like a proof of stake model. So I guess we'll give them that. But effort, who you got in the hot seat or cool throne this week? Yeah, so on the cool throne this week, um, I actually have the Cosmos Hub. No surprise, being the Cosmos bull here. Uh, the Cosmos Hub and the Atom Economic Zone. So um, you've seen a couple chains become consumer chains over the past month or so since replicated security went live. You saw Neutron, which is this Cosmosm generalized smart contract platform, which is like the execution layer for the hub. Um, you saw Stride recently get approved uh, to become like a liquid staking provider of the entire Cosmos ecosystem or predominantly the Atom Economic Zone surrounding the Cosmos hub. Um, that's, I think, going live in, uh, I think, the third week of July. And most recently, this past Friday, you saw Duality Labs uh, post on the forum, uh, the Cosmos hub forum, to become a consumer chain and launch sometime in August. So. With Duality Labs is building, and I'm, I think the Duality Lab team is like super gigabrain. They're on the forefront of MEV research. Uh, Duality is building an, a fully on-chain order book decks 
that is fully aligned with the Cosmos hub. So Stride has their own native asset. Uh, Neutron has their own native asset and they're doing some type of revenue sharing agreement with the Cosmos hub for leveraging the security of the validator set. Duality Labs is saying, let's, we want to become fully aligned with the Cosmos hub, providing using Atom as the gas token, 100% of MEV and transaction fees going back to Atom stakers. Um, the only fees on chain that wouldn't go back to Atom stakers are liquidity providers. Uh, but a part of this proposal is actually having the hub provide 500,000 Atom, which is approximately $5 million uh, today of hub protocol and liquidity to, to LP into um, Duality to kind of jumpstart the, the economic activity in the ecosystem. Um, what I think is interesting that Duality Labs is doing is something called like replicated market making. So what they're able to do is they're able to use contrary liquidity to uh, actually produce any AMM invariant. So typically how this work with, uh, let's like say Curve or Uniswap, um, if you want to have a stable swap pool uh, or for like ETH, staked ETH or ETH USDC, the ETH portion of the LP pair is like split up into those two liquidity pools. So that creates liquidity fragmentation. With re replicated market making, what that what this allows is actually have a one liquidity pool for each asset, so it's all unified into one liquidity pool, and then uh, each each type of pool, like stable swap or or regular constant product AMM curve, uh, the liquidity from that unified liquidity pool can actually be used in each liquidity pool, like as it's as it's, as it's needed. So it kind of creates um, additional capital efficiency. Um, a couple other advanced things that I think Duality is uh, supposed to launch with come August is advanced orders like limit orders or fill or kill, uh, dynamic routing to prevent front running. So the way I think about this is if you're trying to swap like USDC for Atom, let's say there's probably multiple different routes that, that your USDC can take to be converted into Atom. Um, and because your trade is being posted to the public mempool, there's obviously going to be MEV searchers looking to front run your order. Um, and what this does is actually it, it finds like multiple ways to get you your end requested asset and for the best price possible. And by doing dynamic routing, it's actually able to um, really calculate at the moment of execution, like what that best route is uh, and what is like the least likely to be front run. Um, overall, it really sounds like a, a really interesting proposal. This is like the first consumer chain that's going to be fully aligned with the hub. Uh, this is probably the first time you're actually going to see Atom being used as like the native gas token for a chain in the Cosmos ecosystem outside of the hub itself. Uh, and this is really starting to, you're starting to see the narrative of like Atom value accrual, the thing that I think has prevented the hub from, uh, or the Atom asset specifically to really gain, uh, you know, I guess price appreciate accordingly with like Solana and Avalanche and Ethereum over the past cycle was the fact that it was kind of like, Cardano, where you just stake it and doesn't actually do anything, but you're really starting to see a, a full economy start building around the hub. Um, and I think if Duality Labs actually able to create like a, a legitimate product um, and and able to gain you know gain market share in the Cosmos ecosystem, that this could be a, a really good way for for Adam. I think to uh, I I think overall like a really good story for Adam and the Adam stakers. Charles Hawkinson's coming for you for that comment. <laughs> Not worried. Yeah. <laughs> uh no i think that's that's a, this is a really interesting proposal uh the idea of a fully aligned consumer chain is exciting i i like it's you gotta wonder like what the what's the value proposition for the builder in this case but nonetheless it's it's a really interesting development to see uh, and i the first thing that came to my mind uh, was like a more technical question so because the hub does not have smart contracts how is the five million dollars of atom 
deployed as protocol-owned liquidity? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think initially, uh, you actually saw a very similar ask for from the Stride proposal. So when Stride wanted to become a consumer chain, they're like, we'll become one, but we want 450,000 atom of hub-owned protocol and liquidity to be liquid staked on Stride and then deployed to, uh, on Neutron on Astroport to create like a deep liquid market for staked atom or Stride's version of staked atom. Um, how that's going to be done is through multi-sig. So I think the Atom Accelerator team, at least in the interim, is go going to uh, manage that Atom on behalf of the hub. And I think the same thing is going to be done for duality. But the longer term or mid, mid to long term solution to this is the interchain allocator that I know TimeWave Labs is building. And this is going to be essentially like a, a module written in Go uh, deployed on the hub that allows the hub to trustlessly deploy protocol liquidity really wherever it wants, as long as a governance proposal says on behalf of the community, like, yes, we want to deploy this amount of atom to a certain uh, community pool or a certain liquidity pool in, in the interchain. Um, so right now it's going to be more of a trusted setup, but I think the interchain allocator is supposed to go live sometime in Q3 or Q4 this year. And then that'll really be the solution to do this moving forward. Sweet. Okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. Because like this strides use of interchain accounts, I find really fascinating because like that way they can still control uh, EOAs on the Cosmos hub to like stake and unstake their assets. Um, but yeah, going the other way is much harder, right? Be you kind of, it makes sense. You need the trusted setup just given the lack of a, uh, a better solution and, and just really the inability to have smart contracts on, on the, uh, on the network. Yeah. My, my two takeaways from this are, I mean, the first is the Cosmos hub is kind of back. Like there's a lot of momentum uh, for the hub and its economic zone. Uh, like you said, Neutron and now Duality, like a lot of people are choosing to build within that zone. And I think, um, yeah, the momentum is building. We're going to see a lot of other cool projects continue to build there. And it's super exciting to see because, you know, Adam's had that sort of existential crisis over the last couple of years. And it's good to see it sort of forming itself. And like you said, competing uh, with the likes of other layer ones and whatnot. And then the second is that Osmosis has some like really, really tough competitors coming. Um, Duality, like you said, has a great infrastructure. Astroport as well, building on Neutron. There's a lot of DEXs being built within the Cosmos ecosystem that are going to give them a run for their money. And, you know, I'm excited to see the sort of those those wars begin to see, you know, what are users using? Where is liquidity going? I think that's going to be a really exciting area uh, within Cosmos over the next year or so. Yeah, I think just to, I guess, end off, <clears throat> I think one of the things that have hold, held back the hub over the past cycles were this this meme of like, you got to be credibly neutral. You can't, you know, this whole gravity dex debacle that happened where the de the hub had a dex, but the hub didn't want to provide liquidity to the DEX and it created this whole like cold start problem where it was not able to create liquid markets and ultimately Osmosis won that and then the gravity DEX moved off chain um, off the hub. And I think this existential crisis, especially at the Atom 2.0 failing, the community kind of really like looked themselves in the mirror and was like, well, we can't just be staking Atom all the time and the hub actually has to have a purpose. Um, we love to talk about sovereignty in the Cosmos ecosystem. But it's funny that like we're, we love sovereignty, but at the same time, if the hub doesn't actually start not being neutral and if it doesn't have smart contract capabilities, it needs to actually be subjective. It can't be objective. Uh, it needs to start picking winners and losers in order to actually maintain its own sovereignty or else it's going to fall to the wayside, fade into irrelevance, and then ultimately go to zero, even if the Cosmos thesis is right, even if the Cosmos SDK and the tech stack is the best out there and can compete with the OP stacks of the world and, and Arbitrums. 
Um, so you're really starting to see the community kind of take initiative, uh, try to drive value back to the hub, actually, you know, again, throw this idea of credible neutrality by the wayside and, and start to um, just have initiative in building an economy around the hub. What does this mean for osmosis with duality coming online, taking like a very innovative approach to, uh, to what an AMM is and kind of moving towards that order book model and Neutron coming online and bringing Astroport and getting that initial uh, allocation for Stride, from Stride to get their liquidity going there? Like, what is the outlook for osmosis in your opinion? I still think the majority of this space is still brand and, and like whatever's Lindy. So I think the, tech, the best tech doesn't always win. Um, I think we've seen this time and time again, not just in crypto, but I think technology in general, Betamax versus DVD. People say that we're experts back then. Betamax is better tech, but DVD had better distribution. And ultimately, everyone used DVDs. And obviously, we don't use either of those anymore. But Osmosis still has um, like the most IBC transfers, still has like the second largest user base in crypto. It is still the thing everyone thinks of when you think of Cosmos DeFi. You immediately think of, of Osmosis. They're, built, they're, they're kind of growing beyond a DEX at this point. They're becoming a full-fledged DeFi hub with lending markets and I think decentralized stable coins launching in a couple of weeks, a perpetual futures market. So there's a lot of good things to look forward to, to Osmosis um, and they're launching concentrated liquidity themselves in the, their next upgrade. So I think it health, it's healthy competition. It's good to see DeFi starting to potentially flourish in the Cosmos ecosystem. I still envision Osmosis probably being the dominant player, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, but it's really their game to lose. Um, but even if, liquidity does migrate to other dexes i still think like the brand and the overall um i think lindiness of osmosis as a community they have a really strong community as well i think again they're probably going to be the market leader for the foreseeable future yeah that's pretty interesting it's gonna be fun to kind of watch this play out it feels like you know there's finally a, a battle for cosmos DeFi, and competition tends to be a good thing so it'll, it'll definitely be a fun one to watch but um i can go next here and I have a cool throne from late last week. This came out after our last episode, but uh, massive news that I felt went really like under the radar, and it's that SAP is testing their SAP Digital Currency Hub, as they're calling it. Uh, when this thing like allows customers to make international payments using USDC or the Circles Euro version, uh, Euro C, um, and this their uh, blog announcement directly calls this the future of cross-border payments and cited expensive, slow, and non-transparent as issues with the current accepted infrastructure in the cross-border payment space today. And this is exactly what we've been yelling about and how blockchains can be used to solve these problems and how real stable coins that can be reliable are, are the perfect solution to the problems that we're dealing with today. And no one else, like there's not a better possible company to be leading this charge than SAP. Uh, and the reason why that is, is nine out of the 10 companies in the Fortune 500 use SAP software already. So they're already ingrained in some of the most important players in the space. Uh, and their customers actually generate 87% of total global commerce that equates to around $46 trillion annually. So there's not a better player in the space of, of the modern world today than SAP to kind of be taking the position of, hey, cross-border payments suck today, Blockchains and stablecoins are solving this. We're going to be the ones to integrate it. Um, so it feels like this is absolutely massive news. And it's, what's pretty interesting about this is they're still in the test phase and uh, they're currently integrated, integrated with uh, Ethereum's girl, girly test net, which allows people to send like essentially play, play money back and forth just so users can like see like 
oh shit, like this used to be like a seven day process that cost me $75 to uh, wire from, you know, bank account A to international bank account B. Um, now it takes, you know, a matter of seconds and, and you know, finality in a, a matter of minutes. And it's, you know, like how cheap is it to send an Ethereum transaction compared to that? Like this is a monumental upgrade in my current infrastructure. Uh, and so they haven't released exactly where they're going to go live and fully integrate with when they kind of move out of this testnet phase. But it is very, very interesting that they are appearing to be Ethereum aligned. Um, so that's a kind of a huge upgrade. Like usually I feel like last bull run, we'd get these uh, types of announcements where like, wow, this is like a major player investigating the space. And then, you know, it'll be like integrating with random blockchain A instead of like, you know, the market leader, Ethereum. So this is like a really exciting development in my opinion. Yeah, Sean agree. I think this one went way under the radar, honestly, because like they have such a sticky software amongst like some of the biggest companies in the world. Like I remember using some of their products in college and undergrad like five years ago and just thinking, man, this tech is absolutely terrible. But then I think back to like Microsoft and Microsoft Office and how slow moving I felt like they were as a company. And now like I love Microsoft Office. Like I, I, I don't know. I think there's interesting parallels to draw there and just the fact that they touch so much of the world's global commerce in some kind of way is very, very exciting. And the fact that they're actually using Gurley, like that's just wild to me. The interesting thing will to be, we'll see if they launch on an L2 or Ethereum mainnet right out of the box. Like um, I already know what effort capital is chomp chomping at the bit to say here. And <laughs> Hashtag build on base. <laughs> I mean, that could make sense. You got the USDC alignment from SAP. Uh, I just like, it's crazy to me that we can say that they chose USDC and they seem to be choosing Ethereum. Like that is electric news, but let's hear the, uh, let's hear the base theory. No, I was gonna say, imagine they announced like they were using Tether, how crazy the market would be like, what would you mean using Tether? Uh, no, I, I think, I think if, you know, Coinbase announcing their base L2, uh, that's going to go live at the end of this year, I I'm hoping as a coin shareholder that they learned their you know, they took lessons learned from their NFT marketplace. Um, you're seeing the same applications, the same DEXs and lending markets and Ponzi schemes launch on every single L2, every single Alt L1. And what is going to make Coinbase's base different? Um, I sincerely hope because obviously nothing made Coinbase's NFT marketplace different. It was just an NFT marketplace. It completely flopped. It was a really bad look on their overall product strategy and roadmap. And I'm hoping with L2, with, with base that they, come to it guns blazing. They come to it with partnerships with from like legitimate industry, uh, industry uh, market leaders like SAP. Um, and ultimately, like Brian Armstrong's original thesis for crypto uh, was to really be like a global remittance platform, uh, get rid of the bank, get rid of the Western unions of the world. Like, let's just make payments easier. It's like so simple. The economy runs on B2B and B2C and, and P2P payments. Like, and I think SAP would be a ideal partner for uh, Coinbase to launch at one base goes live later this year. Uh, and base is currently running on Gurley testnet. That doesn't mean SAP is going to be using base. Obviously, I'm kind of like bull, you know, uh, I guess hoping that, that they're able to, to, to launch on base. But um, I think it'd just be crazy if they, you know, this is this is incredibly bullish for, for on-chain rails. Um, imagine the amount of interest income that Circle would get. If $46 trillion in B2B payments are using SAP, like how much money is Circle going to print? And I know that they're still moving forward with their IPO plans, hopefully like either end of this year or early next. But I think this is incredibly bullish for overall on-chain rails. And 
Um, I think that the next obvious step is once you get businesses comfortable paying each other in USDC, the next obvious step is, well, as a major business, I'm okay with getting paid in USDC from consumers. So the next step is B2C, and then eventually you're going to see P2P. Um, so I think it's going to start with the businesses and then kind of trickle down to to personal. I mean, even if Coinbase doesn't necessarily have a partnership with SAP yet, uh, looking at the blog posts from SAP themselves, they say that these payments are expensive and they, they cite up to $50 in, per transaction fee. And as, as we know, using Ethereum in a bull run, like transaction fees can get much higher than $50. So I'm sure even if they test out Ethereum mainnet, they realize at some points uh, the fees can get pretty high. I think they probably will migrate to an L2. And the most likely, I think, is base, just given that they're going to have that strong corporate relationship. All right. I feel like that's a good time to transition transition over to my uh, hot seat for the week. And uh, effort's going to be on cloud nine here after that talk we just had on Cosmos. But uh, I've got Ethereum L2s copying Cosmos's original vision uh, of app specific chains, but now called roll apps. So basically, uh, the reason I bring this one up today, and honestly, deserving a cool throne because I'm really excited about what ZK Stack is. But ZK Sync, as Dan alluded to earlier, is kind of uh, ZK Sync's OP Stack equivalent. Um, but obviously with ZK rollups instead of optimistic rollups, and it's like a modular software stack to build chains with different security assumptions and hopefully baked in interoperability thanks to uh, shared proving sequencing uh, designs. Um, but yeah, I just think it's kind of wild that we sit here and Cosmos has been working on this vision for literally four or five years now. And it seems like now every single Ethereum L2 has a modular strategy trying to encourage applications to build app specific on rollups. Um, you know, we have Arbitrum Orbital announced a week or two ago. We've had OP stack for a while. We have Starknet L3s. Like, that's just definitely the way the future is going. Um, so yeah, I just, I had tip to the Cosmos being so early on that thesis and it's really pretty impressive. Era now has like over 600 million, um, in TVL in the bridge contract. But if you look at DeFi Llama, there's only like 100, 130 million. So obviously a lot of people bridging over there, but not a ton of people actually using applications. So again, another kind of factor that puts ZK Sync in the hot seat could be just airdrop siblers kind of parking capital into the ZK Sync bridge and not actually using ZK Sync itself. Um, so in six months, if the token's out and uh, there's not that many people using ERA, I'm definitely going to have them back on the hot seat because that activity will proven to have been non-organic. And quite honestly, like that's a serious threat. Like it's definitely something that could happen. I mean, Arbitrum and Optimism have seen a lot of activity remain robust, but at the same time, block space is becoming more abundant. Um, at the same time when demand's really not there right now. Um, so yeah, I guess uh, I'll leave it at that. I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on the ZK stack. I mean, it's my thesis that a lot of these tech stacks are going to look very, very similar within five to 10 years because they're all essentially building the same thing, which is the ability to create many change, chains, each with their own design, optimized for the specific use case, and that are interoperable with one another in a seamless way. And Cosmos obviously had that vision many years ago and are continuing to build that out. But we're seeing that with the OP stack. We're seeing that with CK Sync stack now. I mean, eventually we're going to agree on some interoperability standards. I think that's going to most likely um, center around ZK proofs. Um, but eventually a lot of these text actually going to look exactly the same. And so a question I, I sort of have is, like, what do the winners look like? Does it, does it make sense now to try and capture market share, to capture 
builders on your your stack, such as like the OP stack, um, partnering with Base and Worldcoin, um, because you know eventually, if if all the stacks are the same, what's the differentiating factor? I mean, there really is none. Um, and I know Effort Capital says this a lot, but infrastructure is going to get commoditized. So, in order to sort of stay ahead of the game, you need to make sure you're you're capturing market share now. And so, yeah, as these converge, I think it's going to be exciting over the next five years to see which of these stacks gain the most momentum right now it seems like OP stacks in the lead but ck stack is probably going to give them a run for their money but again we'll see and and cosmos as well there's a lot of exciting things there and yeah i think it's going to be an exciting race the interesting thing to me here is there's uh one group of blockchains that is making a very different approach that's the high throughput single shard maximalists led by the Solana people. And you got to think like with everybody converging on this one idea and these like there's just seems to be this one small camp of like, hey, we're going to do it differently. And for better or for worse, that's going to be our, our MO. And I kind of fucking love that. It just gives you this different type of energy. That's like it's hard not to bet on that. It's the, the people going against the grain. And, you know, the more time you spend with the modular stack, you're like. I don't know. To me, it starts to feel like a bunch of hocus pocus. Although we do have a bonus episode coming out this week with the ZK Sync uh, Matter Labs team that kind of highlights what the ZK stack is. And I was thoroughly impressed. Um, so this is, this is the first time I felt like the modular stack, like all the pieces came together. Like you have rollups that can be designed on a spectrum of uh, centralization to fully decentralize like a ZK rollup. You have the ability to have L3s. Um, you have native communication that does not rely on trusted validator sets and it's specifically uh, based on cryptography and mathematics. It, it seems to have all the elements that you're looking for. Um, but again, like it's just, it starts to get frustrating when you're thinking about DA layers, settlement layers, you know, where's execution happening? How do I decentralize the sequencer? Now I have a prover and that needs to be decentralized as well. Or if you just have one single damn shard, it, it, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard for me not to love that thesis. I agree. I mean, the, the best returns, are made for non-consensus picks. And that's why, like, as much as everyone likes to shit on multi-coin, like, you really got to give them credit. Like, everyone is zigging. And Solana just zagged even since, like, 2019, 2020, when they were kind of first launching, growing their brand. And multi-coin is still, like, as steadfast as ever in their Solana thesis. And, you know, it, with all these new L2s kind of launching, I'm, I'm honestly sick of L2s launching. Like, I'm sick. Like, we have Tyco or Taiko coming out. We have Scroll going to be launching in the next few months. Like, I guess airdrops are cool. Like, we're all in it for the money and not necessarily the tech. But I'm in it for the applications. Like, I want products. Like, nothing in ZK, ZK Sync and ZK Stack. It looks like it's really solid tech. I'm sure it is. I'm sure they're on the cutting edge of, like, ZK proofs, just like the Matic team is. But, like, is it going to give us new applications? Probably not. Um, there's probably a lot of other things, like decentralized identity solutions, and I'm sure... The listeners are probably tired of me talking about that at least every single time I come on here. But like, until we have a good decentralized identity solution, you're probably not getting any real world applications. And until you get any real world applications, you're just going to get the same pile of shit. A DEX, a lending market, uh, a really interesting way to lock up tokens to earn more yield. Um, but I, I agree. I think Solana needs to like lean into this further. They need to start. Like I, I'm interested in seeing the first like real world application built on Solana because all it takes is one application, one application on Solana that gets a million real world users 
or a 10 to 50 million real world users. And the modular thesis, I wouldn't say it's dead, but you're going to see VC money shift from the modular stack to one single shard <laughs> and just like go ham back into the Solana ecosystem. So the guy who just shilled the newest decks in the cosmos is screaming for new applications. Okay, got it. What what I will say, hold on, just you're right. But what I will say is there's we, we have an abundance of generalized block space. We need more application specific block space. And I think that's going to unlock like the next like iteration of product UX and hopefully capital efficiency. It's like one cool thing that ZK Sync has is Maverick. Maverick's been dominating like the airwaves and the ZK Sync ecosystem. They, they're able, because I think they're able to do like high, high compute, uh, on, on ZK Sync, they're able to have like higher capital efficiency and you're kind of seeing them grow like their liquid staking token market share. It's like there are benefits to launching a new ZK rollup. I don't want to say there, there isn't, but. I think for zero to one innovation, we we need to see uh, more real world applications, and you're just going to see small iterative improvements from there. And and duality might be one of them. To be completely honest, like it might just be small improvements that ultimately no one cares about. But for the sake of my bags, I'm I'm still putting them on the cool throne. Fair enough. Fair enough. And one thing that I think is interesting about the zk stack is. Uh, they haven't really announced anyone that's building in the space, like building a hyperchain, which a hyperchain in the ZK stack is just a roll-up that's connected to the same prover. Uh, so it has a, the cross-communication with the other roll-ups in the ecosystem. Um, they haven't announced anyone building a hyperchain yet, and I'm very excited to see who those players are going to be. Because if I have to guess, and I, I don't have any like information or insights here, this is just purely speculation, it's like I'm. I think it's going to be one of those big payment processing companies, like a Visa type type company, because we've seen Visa make splashes in this space. Now you have other uh, players kind of entering the cross border payment space, like SAP. Like, if there really is like an initial wave here of we need to get blockchains into our payment processing uh, platform, like I, I would imagine that zk Sync, like you know, they've raised a lot of money. They are a very smart, well put together team. Like getting that first major client and user uh, is pretty important. And again, like they're, it's, they're, they of course have done that. So it's going to be very exciting to see who announces uh, the launch of a hyperchain over the next couple of weeks or months. Yeah, Sean agreed, Dan. And you mentioned Visa. And so there's just maybe an honorable cool, cool throne for the week is uh, at Digital Mustafa on Twitter. He actually works at Visa and he put out a really good thread over the weekend of modular versus monolithic. And I was like, damn, like this is Visa. Like they're, they're talking about these things internally. So I hit his DMs and I was like, yo, really good thread. And he was like, thanks, man. Like we decided to start sharing some of the stuff we've been researching internally. So it's like Visa's been looking at this stuff and it's just really cool to see it come to fruition. But anyways, we're running up on almost 35 minutes here for this uh, intro segment quotations, I guess, at this point. But uh, Dan, you want to tell people what's good with Atom Accelerator? Yeah, for sure. Uh, as always, we like to give a shout out to the to our wonderful sponsor, the Atom Accelerator. So if you're a developer looking for a home in the industry, this is just the place to be. You know, We just talked about duality and all the very cool things that they're doing. And their native hub, hub alignment is nothing to be uh, you know, look past. That is a very exciting development. And the first time we've seen anything like this, uh, you know, as we always mention, you know, we have the interchange security that kind of enables these things. IBC giving you the flexibility of interoperability and connecting with these other chains in the Cosmos ecosystem. You know, we see teams like Polymer building out, um, you know, the next wave of what IBC communication will look like and trying to get more non-Cosmos chains involved. 
Um, we talked about Neutron kind of always bringing that next wave of innovation as this permissionless way to launch smart contracts in the atom economic zone. Uh, USDC is inching closer and closer to launching through Noble. And of course, liquid staking is supercharging the Cosmos DeFi. So if you think that you have a, an exciting way to build out or develop anything related to the Atom Economic Zone, be sure to reach out to the Atom Accelerator. We will include their link in the description and the show notes below. Um, and they're doing grants on a rolling monthly basis ranging from $10,000 to $1 million. So again, we'll be able, we uh, will include the link to their site in the show notes. But now onto the interview with Doug Colkett. All right, everyone. We are joined by Doug Colkett, the founder of Ambient Finance, formerly known as CrocSwap with an R. Um, I saw that tweet of yours, Doug. I thought that was absolutely <laughs> hilarious. But thanks for coming on, man. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Nice, nice. So I wanted to start out just by giving, you know, from your perspective, a high-level overview of just how you see AMMs today. What specific problems do you think uh, Ambient is solving? And uh, how is Ambient, you know, differing from the competition? Sure. Um, so yeah, I, I think AMMs have been really successful in actually bootstrapping on-chain markets and um, more critically, actually bootstrapping markets where you don't need, uh, you know, a small handful of trading firms to actually like make those markets run. Uh, the problem with order books has always been that there's whatever, 12, maybe 12 firms in the world that can actually run an order book. Um, so in crypto, especially this has been, been a problem for a long time where if you have a new token, um, you have to get liquidity and oftentimes that comes at a very steep price to get one of these firms actually creating liquidity so obviously i think amfs have been huge in terms of uh this aspect right like getting liquidity today for every token simple um right like and anyone can participate and i think that's really important um also from like a decentralization standpoint right like we can have markets where uh we don't require giant firms to actually like create those markets uh anyone with a wallet can just go and connect and provide Liquidity. So that that's been where AMMs have been super successful, um, and like even even on relatively high throughput chains like Solana, right? Like even today, you see most of the most liquidities in AMMs, not order books. Where AMMs have not been successful, right, is like the underlying economic problem. We've done a lot of research around this, and others have done a lot of research around it. And people are kind of becoming more aware of the problem where. Uh, liquidity providers don't necessarily get a great deal where the fees don't necessarily outweigh the uh, quote-unquote uh, impermanent loss or, or divergence loss um, as, as you know we call it um, right but you know liquidity providers are kind of always short gamma or short this option where heads I win uh, or heads heads you win tails I lose um, but right then the swap fees are supposed to compensate for them, uh, market makers face the same problem, but they have kind of more flexibility around pricing. But so the problem with AMMs is like kind of the the deal isn't great for liquidity providers. Things have been fine now, and we have kind of a lot of really interesting stuff like liquidity mining incentives that fix that. Um, but those aren't those aren't necessarily sustainable for the long run. Um, so like our goal with Ambient is we want an AMM that's good enough where Microsoft or uh, S and P index futures will trade on it and actually compete against anything in the future and the question is how do we get there so our our goal with that is is really well two number one to fix the core economic problems around it um which we think we don't necessarily know the exact solutions to but we're trying to build a platform with enough flexibility and enough primitive 
that people can build the solutions. And uh, number two is kind of to make the experience in general a lot more user-friendly, um, a lot more like what people expect from a centralized exchange. So a lot of DEXs today uh, feel more like a client system, like full-fledged trading application. So we're trying to make things faster, easier, cheaper, and just, just generally more fun to use than what most people are used to in AMMs, especially on the liquidity provided side. So that's high level. Yeah, super, super helpful. Would you say the latter is kind of something that stems from your previous experience as a, an HFT trader? Yeah, I'd say, I, I'd say, um, you mean in terms of like the, uh, usability, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say, I'd say definitely. Um, I think most people, uh, the kind of the old style XYK full range V2 liquidity was relatively simple. I think V3 liquidity is going to get more, uh, or concentrated liquidity or like what you've seen in uni V3 is definitely a lot more complicated. And I think things are only going to get more complicated from here because now we have hooks, um, we have different types of pools, uh, implement orders. So like how you provide liquidity, there's a lot more dimensions to it. And I don't think, um, it's necessarily in- intuitive, uh, isn't right. When people go and participate, right. Like it's not, it's not a great experience. They don't really understand where they should put things. A place liquidity they don't really understand how to evaluate the trade-offs um and so if you want to keep things decentralized where uh okay it's great say winner understands like where to place liquidity or how, how to you know what feature to put it in but if you want to keep things decentralized you need to make sure that even like the average guy maybe does this once a month or uh still still can compete kind of in these games awesome yeah i love that perspective as well and uh, before we kind of jump into the meat of, of what Ambient is doing, I want to get your take on uh, active AMMs, like you know that concentrated liquidity range where LPs have the flexibility to actively manage their positions um, over what range they're uh, kind of supplying to versus like this passive AMM model, like you know just a good old XYK or something more a little more intelligent, maybe like the like Curves V2 uh, models. Like there seems to kind of be this convergence of ideas where around more of the active active AMM side where you know. Ambient, Uniswap, Trader Joe, they've all kind of been pursuing that more active model. Well, um, I'm curious, like, do you think this more passive AMM is a thing of the past where you just supply liquidity to a pool and, and let the, the algorithm kind of do its job? It's, it's a good question. Um, so like, the, I, I think there's still a, a big, uh, a big range of spaces for that, uh, kind of very passive liquidity. We still see like the longer tail of tokens trade on a uni v2. So if you, if you actually look and see where things trading, uni v3 does very well with the majors. Uh, uni v2 does very well, well with like the longer tail tokens, even like Pepe, which got very popular, I think now more traded on v3. But for a long time, even like when it was, you know, very popular, it was still primarily a v2. Um, token, we've built ambient so that we support both styles within the same pool so kind of we imagine that there's a life cycle where when things are very early that very very passive liquidity is important because people people just don't know the price right like things change around a lot um and there might not be a ton of liquidity so people aren't going to go in there and manage it every day so uh we support that v2 style uh full range liquidity and and also another aspect of it can be wrapped in LP right? So that increases uh, composability. You can do stuff where it's a lot easier to stack liquidity mining incentives on top of it, which is like super important for long-tail tokens. Um, a lot easier to do other types of incentive schemes 
with uh, for, uh, that ambient, well, that's actually where the name comes from. We call it ambient liquidity. Um, but yeah, with, with that ambient style, uh, passive liquidity. Um, and then, right, I think over time, as a token becomes more liquid, just naturally, it is, the liquidity is going to be more active or more concentrated because just more capital efficient, right? Like uh, kind of the nature of uh, passive liquidity is you're providing you're using capital to provide liquidity all the way from zero to infinity. Um, Ethereum's probably not going to go to fifty dollars, uh, hopefully, in the next twenty four hours. So you're kind of wasting capital to provide liquidity there. So, so we think we think both are important, and then kind of that cool place like this important, and to have that in the same place without fragmenting liquidity. Right on, right on. So let's let's go. Let's start jumping into this thing. So I think one of the the more interesting things from a technical perspective is Ambient was the first single decks single contract decks. Uh, so why the design choice to make everything in a single contract and what are like what does this unlock for you as the developer? Right. So the the big deal with it is that uh in, in previous decks, every time you had a new pool, you had to stand up a new contract. And it meant that every single contract was indivi- individually managing it its own collateral, right? So um, you know, out of the box, right? What that first thing that's really hard is like standing up a pool is like pretty heavyweight, right? Because you're deploying a, like a pretty big contract uh, on mainnet. It's not cheap. You're talking about a few hundred dollars. So like, um, you know, for whatever, if you're a decent token, that's it's not like going to break the bank. But if you want to do like a very cheap and easy experiment, that's not, it's not great. Um, but more, more important, um, right. Kind of when you have everything in one contract, it's more like one market, right? Because I'm trading between different markets. Let's say I'm going from, uh, you know, shitcoin A to E to shitcoin B in my route, right? Like, and traditionally what would happen is ETH would have to move from pool contract A to, uh, you know, whatever router contract you were using and then back to pool contract B, right? And that's pretty heavyweight and unnecessary, right? Because like at the end of the day, ETH just winds up back at the market. So when everything's in one place, um, right, you don't need to worry about moving the tokens around. The tokens are all um, all in a central location. The pools are separate, but they're just lightweight data structures inside uh, inside this uh, larger contract. So it just it just makes uh, reduced restrictions between trading uh, markets easier. Uh, I think it's going to make markets more efficient over the long run. And then and then also it's, you can do interesting stuff with uh, flash accounting, where you can even start trade. You can do trades. You can trade on one uh, you know in one pool, and you don't actually need to. Uh, fill fill in like those tokens until until the net the end end of the trade so also makes like arbitrage uh a lot lower cost uh, technically you could would be able to do arbitrage even without uh, a full cycle atomic arbitrage without even starting with any any tokens yeah so that gets pretty interesting by reducing the erc20 transfers between pools right because if you look at like you know, uh, a, a Uniswap or a Curve swap just straight through the the front end. It, about fifty percent of the gas is actually the token transfers themselves. So I find that super super interesting to be cutting that down. Um, and I guess with like I, I'm just trying to like uh, work work through what are the implications of having cheaper swaps, like right? Because the arbitrageurs still need to pay the same amount of gas as each other to arb the pools. Um, so really, the benefit comes down to the decks being. Um, like the arbitrage transaction happening more often. So you're like essentially 
getting a, a better price as a dex am i thinking through that properly yeah i think th- i think that's right right like you said the arbitrage orders are still competing with each other um but the kind of the threshold to where they're profitable is going to be lower because the gas costs are lower which just means that um especially for smaller pools where there's not a ton of liquidity and the arbitrage profits are not that large uh, they're more likely to stay uh, those prices are more likely to stay in line with uh, markets efficiently over over time, just because it lowers the arbitrage orders can call kind of add smaller discrepancies. Okay, okay, that makes sense. And so, would that be like increasing the amount of toxic flow that would come through the pool, or how do you think about toxic flow in general? Like, yeah, we've thought we thought a lot about um, toxic flow. So, specifically for this question, it actually um, if you lower the barriers to arbitrage, it actually decreases total um doesn't necessarily decrease the total amount of toxic flow but it increases the number of trades that happen um to get to the same place and so ultimately it is better for for lps um so what one way to think about it is um assume that uh you know an arbitrage where only came in when prices got out of line like at one percent or, or whatever and and this this might be within our our decks so it might be even more the prices in our decks are which, um, to be honest, is where most price discovery happens in the crypto markets. Um, so, if, if you know, if your cost to come in is, is a certain, you're not going to arbitrage until hundred, you know, uh, until you're one percent out of line. Um, right, arbitrage is going to come in infrequently, but they're still going to, you know, the price ultimately the price is going to be move the same distance, like over over that time frame. Um, so, arbitrage orders come in. Less frequently, but they make bigger trades. Now, let's say the price to, uh, let's say your barrier to arbitrage is only uh, one one hundredth of a percent or a basis point, right? Um, arbitrage orders come in much more frequently, but to actually get, uh, but some of those directions are going to be wrong, right? Because the market's going to bounce around over time, right? So ultimately, what happens is you get the same total toxic flow, but you get a lot more arbitrage trades and uh, and therefore a lot more fees you collect collect over time so um actually lowering the barriers to arbitrage uh results in a better deal for lps okay i'm following that then so right like even if we get that one percent move um in the cheaper pool to arb against you know you could get like a half percent up and then a quarter percent back down and then get the one percent so that extra trade is extra fees quarter percent up quarter percent down quarter percent up quarter percent down maybe then maybe like three quarter percent up right so you end up getting you know whatever nine um and you know two two times right you end up getting like nine quarter percent before what more right on okay totally following there that's that's really interesting and i guess that's a great segue into kind of how you think about lp well-being in a pool and like a lot of that does stem from the fees that they earn to be uh you know from these trades so how do you think about the i know you guys are employing uh dynamic fees so talk to us a bit about the the dynamic fee algorithm that you guys are going to be using and kind of how it uses that to to price the current fee the way the way we think about it is um ultimately right like you the really nice thing about amms is like uh you have this concept of uh il or, or divergence loss or whatever you want to call it and all and the really cool thing is that's not path dependent so um you know if you don't think about fees like just how much il do i eat sitting in this pool relative to holding a 50 50 portfolio is just a function of how much the price uh the price moves so if i, if I join the pool and I leave, uh, let's say a month later, um, how much, how much IL I ate, um, how much it cost me. It's just a function of where the price ended up at. 
So it doesn't matter what happened in between. It just matters where, where the end is. So the interesting thing is that makes it kind of simpler to think about um, because what's going to, where things are going to be in a month is just going to be a factor like exogenous market forces pretty much. So uh, your IELTS kind of fits for any, any given market. Um, there's not much you can do about it because you can't really change where the price are going to be in a month. Um, but what the goal is, is should be, I should be collecting enough fees over that month that, um, I'm adequately compensated for it, for the IL. Um, and you know, it might, might not always work out that way, but in expectation, right? There's certain amount of volatility in the market. There's probably going to be, it's probably going to move X percent. Sometimes it might move less, sometimes it might move, move more, but like with a given amount of volatility, um, right. I, I probably have like some expected. IL costs and I want my fees to compensate that. So given that you can't really do a lot on the IL front, what you can do a lot on is on the fee front, right? And and this is like, you know, this is the same concept how market makers work, right? Like market makers don't charge the same bid ask spread every single time, like period, every single second of every single day, right? And that's how AMMs have worked up till now. There's fixed fee, even if there's multiple fee tiers, um, right? Like in uni v3, they're still fixed, right? So if I'm in the five basis point pool, I'm in the 30 basis point pool, I'm only collecting that for, for the entire period. Um, some sophisticated players might move between fee tiers, but that's pretty few and far between. And again, that like, kind of gets away from decentralization where uh, Joe Sixpack isn't going to be doing that. So the goal is, right, like I should be charging adequate, like relative to the, um, you know, toxicity of the flow, which ultimately determines kind of this IL on a macro scale, right? I should be charging that, uh, that flow for its toxicity, right? So I should be pricing it correctly. So we have this concept of, of dynamic fees and, and kind of the first step to that is like on a regime based dynamic fee. So there are certain periods where, uh, usually when like volatility is high, liquidity is scarce, um, it's highly in demand. Uh, liquidity scarce, highly in demand. So you as a supplier of liquidity, i.e. NLP, should be charging more for liquidity and vice versa. There are periods where the market's pretty flaccid. There's a lot of liquidity. There's not much demand. People don't aren't really trading. The price of liquidity should, should be lower. Um, we have a pretty clever hack where because you have, at least for, for pools where we have this, like EQSDC, you have these unique pools where you already have different features. So you're like running a natural experiment. I can look at the, at least I can look at the five basis point pool. I can look at the 30 basis point pool and I can just look back over the past hour, which pool has been um, outperforming in terms of collected fees. Um, so because we have this natural experiment um, and, and because it's pretty persistent, usually like the five basis point pool has done better over the past hour. It's probably going to keep doing better over the next hour. We can, um, we can just toggle the fees in our pool. To reflect which pool's outperforming. So so theoretically, with pretty good chance, right, you get the best of both worlds, right? Because because fees adjust over time. So so we kind of call that a, a price discovery vampire attack. Um in the sense that like the uni markets are doing the hard work for us there. Um so that's that's what uh that's what we're gonna have out um very soon. That's kind of phase one. Fa phase two is we want to actually start looking at where does order flow originate from and not all sorts of order flow are equally toxic um so for example liquidation bots tend to be very very non-toxic uh because they're not usually trading to like capture a small edge they're not usually trading like against the finance price they're trading for different reasons um 
So to the extent uh, that that order flow is coming, it's non-toxic. Another example of non-toxic order flow is uh, the anything coming off like the MetaMask router or the Coinbase router because uh, a very sophisticated trading firm is never ever going to send their trading flow through the MetaMask router because it charges uh, whatever 1% fee on top. Uh, and so, right, like just the fact that order flow is coming through there is a credible sign that it's non-toxic. You can get into other stuff, right, where you can even start saying, um, you know, you could build your own mechanisms. You could say, okay, did someone go in and voluntarily accept like a two-block delay or something? And that'd be, that'd be a uh, credible signal of non-toxicity. But what, what we ultimately want to do is start saying, okay, we can start dividing up order flow. And what we do know from our research is actually toxicity really only comes from a very small subset of wallets. Um, so once you can start dividing up order flow, you can start giving very good prices to credibly non-toxic order flow um, and just start charging successively higher prices to the to the most toxic order flow. Okay, so it sounds like there's two pieces here. So let's dive into the first one first, um, which would be that like the pricing model is kind of based off of uh, of the uni pools. And you, I like how you kind of called that like a price discovery vampire attack. So this seems like a great starting point, but you know, if it really does become like such a better, um, you know, way more like less hostile environment for LPs then you know, it would, I, I like in my head, I'm seeing it like attract successfully vampire attack those pools. And so at that point, um, you know, it, it would probably not make sense to leverage these uh, lower TVL pools. It's not the long-term solution. It's a, it's a clever hack to get us. Uh, and, and obviously right. People might want tokens on us and we hope that the tokens train on us and, and not uni. For example, we'll be on other chains where Uniswap might not necessarily be. So yeah, you're absolutely right. When I mean, we have, we have other models, uh, we have we have an alternative model that doesn't leverage uh, the Uniswap. So you you can look at things like uh, volume volatility. We try to do as much calculation. Uh, I actually think we do all the calculation on chain. So you can deploy these models that look at um, certain. You, you can look at your own pools. Um, how, how fast have you been accumulating fees? Um, and you can you can kind of do this adjustment process where you can say, okay, you know my fees are twenty basis points in the past hour, but. Um, relative to like how much the price has changed uh, or, you know, relative to the rate of change in the prices, relative to my volume, these fees are probably too low or, or, or too high, right? So you have kind of this control, uh, control like this feedback loop where, where you adjust relative to it. And does the user deploying the pool have the discretion of like what the, the, uh, the fee algorithm is used for that specific point? Yeah, so we never really anticipated that books would be so popular on day one. So we call them permission pools. I, I have to admit, hooks, hooks are way better. Um, hooks are a way better term. So we always uh, anticipated that we'd have quote unquote canonical pools, like kind of our main pools, um, and that we'd run it. We never anticipated hooks would be so popular on day one. We thought we'd have to actually convert people to do it. So um, we we uh, we haven't just running with our canonical pools now. We'll turn on uh, turn on the user defined hooks. Um, you know, within within a matter of uh, be within less than a week. Um, so yeah, I mean, hooks got very popular. Uh, so we're going to make sure that it's supportive. And if it's a user defined pool, yeah, same same thing. Users have total freedom to define uh, if if they define a, a given pool, right? What the what the algorithm is there? We we want people to experiment, right? Like we 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 have a vision. We want to build stuff, but we also want people to experiment. Uh, we're we're a platform. Okay, and I had this question later towards the end of the conversation, but now seems like a good time to address the elephant in the room. Like, what was your reaction when you saw the Uni V4 announcement? Are you like excited to kind of see things moving in this, uh, like, 
like I said at the beginning, like this seems to be like this concentration of ideas towards this more active AMM. Like, how how are you feeling when you saw that announcement? Uh, good. I, I think it's good validation um, that the stuff we've been working on uh, is is important, right? Like a lot of these a lot of these ideas uh, when we started working on them, people people were like, uh, like for example, the the singleton contract. People would say, "Oh, is that a good idea? Should you put everything in one contract?" So uh, at least never have to answer that question again uh, <laughs> so yeah no I, I think it's a good validation of where we we're going we're I think have a lot of things where uni isn't necessarily doing it or, or they're doing it in ways that I feel like is less efficient than how we're doing it so um, it's good that they have have their own vision they're building on it yeah strong agree there and I have a, a layman's question for you but I just hear a lot of concentration from your end on making the LP experience a lot better and increasing fees and revenue generated for them to, you know, kind of make up for some of that IL that they experience. So these, this has to be coming from somewhere. Is it all coming from gas optimization or is it increased fees that traders are paying? Like, how do you really balance being a protocol in between two customers as the LPs and the traders? No, it's really, it's really tough, right? Cause you really have two, two separate customers. Um, for us, uh, we think LPs have not had a great deal. Um, we think also, depending on who you are, we can do have a better deal for swappers. I mean, the reality is, I think Uni is the existing AMMs or Uni or whatever is a very, very good deal for um, a very, very small percent of swappers that probably don't look like your regular swappers. Um, I do like I, I won't say which firms but right there there are a very small number of firms that are, are generating um, a lot of money from kind of this broken amm model so i don't even know how much of the benefits accrue to regular swappers um they're mostly you can look you can see which wallets are really accruing um money it's it's not many um and it's certainly not the guy at home uh so i think right like it's a good deal for a small percent it's probably a good deal for ethereum itself so so it does hurt me as an ethereum holder <laughs> Because right at the end of the day, this kind of uh, this kind of uh, liquidity that's not being charged correctly ends up uh, really people pay a lot of money for the top of the block and burns burns a lot of gas and generates a lot of MEB um, fees and and block inclusion fees and so kind of juices Ethereum yield and increases the burn. Um, but yeah, in general, I'd say it's pretty bad for LPs um, and even for regular swappers. I don't think kind of fixing things really changes a lot. But if anything, right, kind of discriminating against toxic flow will eventually allow us to give better prices to uh, the or- most of the ordinary users. No, Sam, I-, I love that angle there. And like, I feel like an example of this, of like favoring the um, the LP over the the trader in some regard is like not allowing for JIT liquidity, right? And you can't have uh, a deposit come in and supply to the specific range where the trade is happening. And ultimately like that would benefit the trader right because you'd get a better price whereas uh the lps get hurt in that scenario because they don't accrue the fees like is how do you like is there a is it possible to over optimize for the wrong party i guess it is it is possible i I think though especially with jet liquidity the issue is that you're right like the swapper can potentially get a better person not not always actually so so that's the that's the other thing about it um because nobody's giving you jip liquidity unless the market's moving in the right direction so um as in against you as a swapper so uh you know depending on like where your limit like where your slippage is but but like the point is if you send uh 
like if I'm an MEV searcher, when I provide jet liquidity, I'm looking at the price of Binance, right? So you have 12 second block time um, and price of, uh, you're coming in and buying and the price of price of Binance has gone up. Um, I'm not going to provide you jet liquidity because it means I'm getting filled at a bad price. If price of Binance has gone down and it's a bad swap. Um, I will provide you jet liquidity, but, but that's exactly the time I, I don't want to be filled. So I don't know. It depends what your slippage is. You might get filled regardless, but, but the point is, right, like, JIT liquidity also comes with adverse selection to uh, to the swapper. So so there are times right where where it is better, but like often and and like going back to TradFi, like we've seen like these types of these types of systems like flat flash orders, uh, like I don't know, like fifteen years ago, 10, 15 years ago, and like equities market like last look in FX markets, and and they always inevitably lead to like really low market quality over time because what happens is even if you have jit liquidity eventually the lps the regular lps leave and then as a swapper you're back with uh less passive liquidity less firm liquidity and uh some jit liquidity that's unreliable okay yeah super interesting perspective there as well but uh one of the other interesting things you guys are doing is the idea of like surplus collateral or the idea of having like a, an account within the singleton contract so walk us through what that is why it's important and i'm really curious about how like the the accounting of it like how does the system actually keep track of the user balances yeah so so basically the way that works is um because all the collateral is held like all the tokens in the decks the collateral is held in a single place um what makes sense is that the user um can hold uh, hold the balance um just directly directly at the exchange and really under the hood what that looks like is there's a map it maps users to um the amount of tokens tokens they own um they hold on on their dex balance um but what's interesting about that right is now i can swap i can you know provide liquidity i can do anything um and i don't need to actually even move tokens in my transaction so so it's really useful uh and, and like you said a lot of the, the gas costs are token transfers so if i'm an active trader if i'm gonna hold a position for you know a few hours or, or whatever probably doesn't make sense for me to you know take the tokens out pay that gas and then go back send the tokens back in i can just hold this this surplus collateral um position uh what would also is interesting and that it opens up is we want to move in the direction of uh quote-unquote gasless transactions and that's built into the protocol so any, anything in the protocol can be done through these uh gasless transactions which are really uh erc erc uh, eip 712 signatures happen off chain you pass it to a relayer. Um, it can even be, you can specify which relayer I trust to execute it. You can specify a given Oracle condition that has to happen. That can be arbitrary. So, you know, it becomes possible to do things like stop losses or only trade if like certain conditions are hit. But um, these, this surplus collateral balance actually enables that because the way the relayers get paid is they get paid out of this surplus collateral. So then now also you can pay if I'm trading, I can pay just with whatever tokens I want. I don't have to pay, uh, you know, the cost of the, I mean, ultimately it's the cost of gas, right? Because the relayers themselves have to pay the gas. But I can say, hey, I'm willing to do this swap. Um, and whoever executes it for me can collect $2 of USDC at the end of the trade, or $10 or whatever of USDC at the end of the trade. Um, and now I, I don't even need a wallet anymore, right? So, so it makes it really interesting, right? I don't have to manage wallet. I don't even have to manage ETH. I can just trade on on this thing, technically, I could go to another chain. I don't even need to connect to the chain right, anymore. I don't need to worry about what the native token is. Um, 
all that stuff. So uh, that that's also kind of like why it's there to, to enable um, that kind of longer term. Yeah. So one thing I'm curious about is more on like, I guess the, the gas side of things is like, you know, sex to decks are accounts for a large portion of, of decks volumes today. Uh, but these entities, as you mentioned, are like large players that have very strict internal compliance departments. And like, I'm curious, you don't generally see these guys LPing uh, as much as, as just pure trading. And they're like, you know, these guys won't even approve tokens to, to, to pools. Um, so do you think that like using these accounts is for them or, or like really who is, is this for? It could be for them. Um, right. Yeah. It is a question like how, how, do, how long does it take for them to get comfortable using it? It certainly, it certainly will reduce their costs. So I think there will be some competitive drive to use it because even if firm A doesn't use it, um, firm B can use it and can trade for half the cost of firm A. Um, well, eventually firm B is just going to win those ARBs. So, um, so I do think there will be some competitive drive for it, especially especially on the stat arb side. Uh, so if you're doing like atomic arb, especially if you're arbing between us and like another dex, you have to take the token out. Um, but especially on the stat arb side, I think it should get more common. But but I think even for like regular traders, um, you know, a lot of people will go and buy a token. They don't necessarily. I'm buying some meme coin. I'm not necessarily buying it to hold. For if I'm holding it for a long time, put it in your wallet. If you know, I'm buying it because the price has gone up. I want to hold it for a few hours. I'd say use use the dex balance. So uh, I, I think there's a range. People super interesting. Yeah. Do you? Uh, this is a little more off topic, but now it just came to my head. Is when it comes to retail flow, do you think that will exclusive like? Do you think it'll exclusively just flow through dex aggregators at some point in the near future? It's tough. Um, maybe, uh, but. I think people have been saying that thesis for a while and it doesn't it doesn't seem to happen so i don't know uh maybe maybe not um so yeah it's it's a good question uh i i think maybe sometimes people overemphasize with retail how much they care about getting like you know one basis point or whatever a few basis points cheaper uh, and a lot of people just care about a better user experience um so i think dex aggregators obviously can get cheap prices but they may not necessarily be the most fun app to use i mean like right, what's one of the biggest companies in um crypto coinbase it's not like coinbase is known for having the lowest fees but they have a ton of users just because it's kind of a better user experience yeah i think that's a super fair point i always think too with the l2 conversation it's like at what point do users not care that much about a 50 percent reduction in fees apples and oranges but same uh same takeaway um, but I do want to pivot the conversation a little bit to, to governance. That's kind of a facet of crypto that isn't necessarily fully figured out yet. So I'm curious uh, your takes on governance and exactly what aspects of the protocol will be governance controlled. Yeah. So the protocol has a, has a fair bit of power on, on the governance side. Um, and that's partially just to reflect that, again, we don't really know what the uh, right like answers are. We don't necessarily think like exactly the protocol as it as it stands today, um, will be the same protocol that ends up, uh, you know, ends up being the right thing. So, you know, uh, what one big difference between us and, and uni is, uh, we're upgradable. Um, so we do think, right. There will be changes probably over, over time. The kind of the architecture we have is super backwards compatible. So any, any like way people are using the protocol, uh, will be, you know, always very, very backwards compatible. Um, in that aspect of it, but uh, there there are things that we think we want to add in um, over time. Um, on, on the governance side, uh, 
you know, because, because those like powers kind of exist, um, and also like to define pool types, um, define, like, protocol fees to define like what are the JIT thresholds, at least especially on like the pools that are canonical. So kind of on user defined pools, um, technically the governance could override it, but, um, we'll, we'll defer to like, if it's a user defined pool, what, what, whatever, however they define the pool is or what mechanism they give. Uh, but that being said, right, like, because the governance is powerful, we're, we're really cognizant of being careful around that. So, you know, everything is carefully gated by, you know, long time locks, uh, and obviously rug people, uh, multi-sigs, uh, for now, and then, you know, with decentralized going forward. And, and then the other thing I think that we've done at least fairly innovative on the governance side is we've, we've divided out into this, uh, kind of this layer in between implementation and governance that we call like the policy layer but that's where certain aspects that might be governance related for example the creation of like new pool types can be offloaded to um you know offloaded for that just one specific governance responsibility in one very narrow context to another um smart contract or, or another system um Right, and then that that so that makes it easy for people to call it, but but call that kind of those powers in in a very uh, limited, predefined, predefined way. If that makes any sense. Okay, super interesting there as well. Um, and so when it comes to things that governance has control of, it's one of those things is permission pools or as hooks as they're being called as well. Yeah. So so yeah, right now right now to actually create a new type of pool template, it is governance gated. Um, and so right. To create a, a so so the, the basically the way it works is there's there's pool templates each template um a template defines the parameters of uh template defines the parameters of like what's the permission oracle which is basically the hook contract um and like dynamic fee stuff uh the template defines stuff like what's the tick size in the pool uh you know what are the jit thresholds um other other aspect yeah like stuff like that so the pool templates kind of define these pool parameters, um, and then anyone can you know create and also gate whether the pool can be created on any given token uh, pair or maybe be restricted to certain pairs, right? So there might be a pool template that's only applicable to you know certain tokens or whatever. So we we have pool templates. Um, governance technically defines which templates are uh, instantiated, um, but going back this policy system is actually how we make that permissionless where we say okay we have a policy where somebody goes in calls it it creates a pool template at like a hatch um so right so that's how like you avoid collisions so you say okay you're you define this contract the contract defines a cryptographic hash um you create this template you can set the parameters you set like the oracle the permissioned oracle contract all this stuff and right like now you can permissionlessly anyone can come and permissionlessly create um these pool templates through which normally a governance function but like through a policy is has a has a very defined way to do it in in a specific context so this is definitely something you've been thinking about for a while. So I gotta ask you, like, what uh, what kind of what kind of hooks do you think or permission pools do you think will be like super exciting and you just can't wait to see people get their hands on? It's a, it's a great question. I I am really excited to see um again like as you can tell like what what you think is important is like toxic flow and the economics. So I'm really excited to see kind of how people 
um, start thinking about um, the economics. I think like in the AMM space, a lot of people have done a lot of work on what's the shape of liquidity, like, oh, what type of curve is it? Is custom product curve um, or like this di different shape? They haven't done a lot of work on like adequately pricing liquidity. So uh, obviously like that, we're super excited about. So I'm, I'm really excited to see um, like from a protocol. So the example I always use is like Olympus Dow, like owns all the liquidity in their pool, right? But like, start seeing like protocols can say, okay, maybe you can only swap in this protocol, this pool, if you hold X amount of a certain token, or you can only provide liquidity, um, you know, if, if you're part of this DAO or, or whatever. So it's all also interesting to see, um, kind of how these like quasi private markets evolve. I think will be really interesting. Okay. That's pretty exciting as well. Cause yeah, I was just, I was actually thinking about something similar for, uh, for DAOs as well. Just so many tokens sitting, uh, and Dow Treasuries sitting unused at like, all right, it's time to deploy, get some liquidity back on chain. But um, one of the other things we haven't talked about is uh, knockout liquidity. And this is something that's like native to every pool and is not reliant on like this external uh, permission pool idea. So can you walk us through kind of how knockout liquidity effectively becomes like an on-chain atomic limit order in some way? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So so what, what it actually looks like is under the hood is it's a thin range order. So unlike a traditional limit order, which is just at exactly one price, um, what it actually is is a range order from a very a very small range. So right now it's sixteen basis points. Um, we might be able to make that small. But the idea is okay, I, I meant a range order. Um the range order starts out of range. So let's say you're buying, right? So let's say I wanna, you know, put in a limit order for ETH at um, you know, whatever. I think it might dip to what's that now? It's seventeen thirty. I think it might dip to seventeen hundred. So I want to put in, you know, a buy order. I'm going to buy the dip. Um, so let me let me put in a limit order here. Um, it's going to mint. It's going to mint not exactly seventeen hundred. It's because it's got to go on this. Uh, uh, it has to be on a valid tick in the range, but it might be like sixteen ninety eight to seventeen oh two or something, right? So it's a range order. Um, it provides liquidity like anything else in the curve. But what happens is when the price of the curve dips below the end of that range order, um, which is, you know, whatever, pretty close to your limit order, um, when it dips below that range order, so it, it calls this uh, calls this function that basically takes that order, um, atomically pulls uh, your liquidity out. So, and so now you put in USDC, or yeah, you put in USDC, you've been fully converted to ETH, um, what happens is that the liquidity gets atomically pulled out of the pool. Um, the fee accumulation gets snapshotted. And then um, when you can go back and, you know, claim claim the filled limit order, um, and as well as any fees that the liquidity position has accumulated. So unlike a traditional swap uh, where you're paying liquidity fees, in this case, you're actually receiving liquidity fees. So it's the same as any other liquidity provider. Um, so, uh, you know, if you're patient, if you're a patient directional trader, I think it's a very useful way to trade. Um, and that and that happens all within the same curve. Uh, so traditionally, the problem with like kind of on-chain limit order implementations is if stuff moves fast, you probably don't get filled. In this case, even if there's a Flashbox bundle, uh, if there's a sandwich attack, um, you you still get filled, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. As long as the curve touches your price, you're atomically locked in. And filled, and and it helps helps the uh, health of the pool itself, right? Now, now these limit orders are all providing liquidity into the curve, right? Which makes it a better deal for swappers and everyone else. You don't have to worry about all this complicated routing. So, one of the things there is, uh, like, I think this is an adjustable parameter, but what's the minimum tick size? Because isn't there a world where you could get like partially filled? 
Yeah, you can you can get partially filled. So uh, you could get until you're actually at the end of your range order and fully filled, you're not atomically locked in. So that would be one difference between like a traditional limit order where um, if you get half filled, right, like your the price moves back. Um, you don't have that locked in. So you, you have to touch the end of it, uh, right? We think if it's thin enough for most users, uh, it's probably close enough, um, but you're right. Like obviously smaller kick sizes uh, make that less of an issue. Um, and when lower gas environments, L2s were definitely going to run at, at smaller kick sizes. But but for most ordinary users, we think it makes sense. If you're a high frequency market maker, um, it's not as good as an order book, but a lot of the times high frequency market makers make a lot of money is because they're playing a PVP game. So the, the distinction here, right, like from an order book is that traditional order book, um, like limit orders are like, it's very PVP, like who's at the front of the queue, who's getting filled, right? That makes it bad if you're a, another liquidity provider. So like, to be clear, like these limit orders participate pro rata with all the other liquidity in range in the pool, which we think is, you know, critical to, to keeping keeping the core dynamics of an AMF. What would you say, Doug, like in two years, like would make you look back and be like, man, like Ambient has been a huge success. Like what is the the end goal for Ambient? Yeah, I think the end goal, so two things. One, I mean, one, obviously, like we talked a lot of fixing, fixing the economics. I wanted to be clear that, you know, LPing is not, uh, there shouldn't be a debate like LPing. LPing can be profitable. It's a useful way to use your money may come with some risk, but but it's a good way to um, deploy deploy capital. Um, two would be, right, if price discovery moves on-chain, or at least starting to move on-chain, I, I would hope price discovery is still not happening at Binance two years from now and nowhere else. So um, definitely want to make kind of these on-chain markets efficient and liquid enough where, uh, you know, where, where they're actual, actual markets and not just, not just following along wherever uh, Binance goes. Interesting. So I'm sure there's more examples, but one of the largest examples, quite honestly, the only one I can think of off the top of my head right now, where price discovery happens on chain, I believe, is staked ETH, right? Because the curve pool has like a 2% depth of like a couple million bucks. And I don't know if there's anywhere else even remotely close to that. How does that change the dynamics of of LP, A, LPing and B, arbitrageurs? Well, the first thing is I think it's straight up better for LPs, right? Because it like, you can do a thought experiment where like, let's assume you have a liquidity pool where there's just like no endogenous users, right? You just have a bunch of liquidity and it's just sitting there and you don't have any organic users. Um, all you have are arbitrage orders who come in and hit that. And arbitrage orders aren't in the game to make uh, or lose money, right? Like they're, they're not losing money. So at the end of the day, right? Like especially after gas fees, like LPs have to kind of lose money, at least in expectation in, in that thing. So to the extent that way more price discovery happens outside the market, like that's just bad for LPs. So the flip side of that is if you can move price discovery on market uh, or on chain, then it's better for LPs, right? Because that's actually means that um, you have a lot more activity that feeds into to fees. Um, you do kind of see that another example is like meme coins before they're listed are actually like, we've done some research on this. Uh, actually, that's a, pretty profitable elf that is like one thing that's like pretty profitable from very volatile but um but there's definitely alpha there um lping early on meme points especially before they're listed on exchanges um so yeah I, that would be that would be like a pretty important like 
they kind of go hand in hand. The the other thing is you start flipping it where like you kind of hit this cycle where the more price, like the less toxic flow there is, or at least the better you are segmenting it, the lower the cost for non-toxic flow, which attract, I mean, obviously there's barriers to trading on chain, but it attracts more uh, non-toxic users, right? Because you're looking, what's the price to execute a Binance versus what's the price to execute at, hopefully you're looking at Ambient and, and hopefully Ambient's eventually cheaper than Binance. Um, and you say, right, okay, maybe I'm going to route my order flow instead of Binance and at that point um, right like that makes the market healthier and then you know also then less toxicity then you can lower prices more and and so on and so on so that you know that that would be the dream right that we can actually start replacing not just AMs aren't just things on chain right like we can start competing with off chain exchanges you know long term like I said I, I want Microsoft to trade on AMMs very, very interesting. And how does latency come into effect all this, right? You get a block every 12 seconds on Ethereum, whereas Binance is quoting you every microsecond. So how does that affect price discovery again? I think there's there's good, there's good and bad to it, right? Like obviously faster price changes are better. Um, the flip side of that is very, very low latency markets become very PVP, right? You have a few players who are really, really skilled at executing really, really fast, which means if you're not one of those players... Um, you're just at an inherent disadvantage. So one thing that's like interesting about like on-chain stuff is that uh, when, you know, when prices move, instead of a latency game, it becomes a pop-up block, right? Like so instead of who's going to fire off a packet fastest to the network uh, gateway or uh, to the exchange gateway, it's who's going who's gonna to land top of block. So we have some interesting ideas about kind of changing that dynamic to where um, instead of whoever's paying the most to get top up block, it's whoever's kind of paying the most to LPs in the pool. So I think like kind of long-term, it, it almost looks like a uh, batch auction system um, where you're saying whoever wants priority can, you know, pay, pay the most LPs to get priority. Right. But like kind of the, the surplus of those, uh, of those positional rents start accruing to the LPs. In the pool, which I think is healthier than even order books. Okay, now that's super interesting. And could you do that in such a way where, like, obviously you have to work around the base layer in this in this case. Like, can you build that batch auction system where it works on Ethereum? You can. You can definitely build the system like that. Um, so, like, rough sketch of it would be something like anyone can participate in the pool. Anyone can go in. Like, pools permissionless, composable, all that. But you know the 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 price you pay to interact with the pool is uh you know might just be higher right? it might be a hundred basis points or whatever but but still means the pool's fully composable no one can get it um the way it might work is like with this order flow segmentation system where i'm um, so there's certain ways like i can credibly signal my order flows non-toxic um you know, maybe I accept an arbitrary delay. Uh, maybe, you know, I'm a larger trader and I've accumulated reputation. Uh, we talked talk about relayers. You can also have a system where you have relayers and the relayers themselves are responsible for policing order flow and they have a reputation score over time. And then in between, right, you might have people are toxic flow, but you start saying who's willing to... Uh, kind of been a meme i don't know i really saw like in the uni before white paper where they had the donate function um we have a similar thing a tip system <laughs> it's 
So it's kind of a meme like, oh, this is how we fix LP profitability. You just call it a different thing. Uh, but yeah, we, we have a similar thing we call it where you can voluntarily pay the higher uh, a higher fee. And that's not just for me reasons. It's because, right, like you might have certain players who over time consistently, you know, donate whatever X percent of their alpha into the pool. And right now, now with uh, permission pools, you can build a reputation system. So you can say, okay, um, and it's easy. It's on chain, right? So like, well, it's not easy, but right, like we have we have a Merkle root. We can look over the history of the chain and make assertions about it in, in some way or another. And it's probably the hardest engineering standpoint, but it can be done, right? We can look at a given source of order flow. We can say how toxic has it been, and uh, how much of the toxicity did it donate back to the pool? And right now, now you can start saying, okay, we have three classes. We have people who just don't want to participate at all and are going to pay a lot, and they're going to be at a natural disadvantage. With people who are very non-toxic who are going to um, naturally pay low fees uh, or incredibly non-toxic, or at least could be pretty sure they're non-toxic, they're going to pay low fees. And we have people in between who are uh, kind of able to get priority in this system, but only to the extent that they're willing to share a large fraction of the uh, the alpha with the LPs. In the pool. So it's so a similar concept of flashbots, right? Where you have players who have alpha, but a lot of the value of that alpha goes towards um, towards the block build, the relayer, the validator, or whatever. In this case, hopefully the alpha goes to the LPs. In the pool. So that's that's kind of a very high-level overview. Some nuts and bolts to fix, but super optimistic kind of on that. That is wildly fascinating. I have like a million more questions, but we might take a, we might need a whole nother podcast for that, to be honest with you. Um, so I guess we'll, let's zoom out here. When we look at the DEX market today, Uniswap by far and away is just dominating everybody in volume. Like, what's the reason for that? Why why are they crushing everybody else? I mean, I don't think there's been a ton of innovation on the mechanism. So there's been a lot of innovation on like Ponzi nomics, how like things have been stacked on top of anything else. But I don't think there's really been a lot of innovation in the core mechanism of how an AMM actually works. I think most things are either most things are still B2 forks, right? So Uni's on B4, and like most of these other AMMs are just B2 forks still. Uh, yeah, and just volatile pairs. I mean, it is, it is right? Like the reality, I hate to say this as a competitor, but the reality is they have a pretty entrenched position. Uh, Uni pool is almost like the analogy is like aspirin, right? Where like the brand name has almost become like synonymous with the entire product category. So uh, people just use it as like shorthand, I'm going to create a Uni pool. I, the, the other thing is, right, and, like, we're still try, like, trying to see, like, oh, they have a lot of LPs that are super loyal because it, it's pretty clear that certain LPs aren't, aren't necessarily great uh, making money, and they've been there for years, so, um, you know, have a, having very loyal LPs, uh, I guess, is a certain, certainly pays, pays off, or at least hard to, hard to peel away. Um, I, I guess the other thing, though, would be, like, the reality is, like, from like an on-chain activity perspective, we've kind of been in like a two-year bear market. Like it's almost like from like May 2021, like on-chain act, like and maybe it peaked like a little bit more in later 2021. But like activity's kind of been down, right? Like so before there was like kind of exponential up until like mid 2021, and it's just kind of been down from now. So it's probably easier to defend a dominant position when like the market's kind of shrinking or in like secular contraction versus so it'd be in- interesting to see like can they hold that dominance when the market's like you know in exponential growth mode a lot right because it's easier to hold on to people you know, still win over 
new customers. Yeah, I think that's a, a very fair point and makes a lot of sense. But I, I am curious too, like you teased a little bit earlier that you guys were planning on launching on other chains. So do you have any details you can share on that front? Nothing specific yet. Um, we should have should have some details soon. Although, I mean, ultimately we're, we're chain agnostic. We're EVM based, obviously, but pretty chain agnostic. Have my own views about different chains, but we want to be where users users are at um, with the caveat that we're a small team. So trying to can't support everything on, on day one. So um, we'll be kind of selective about like where, where we roll out uh, to see where we can make the biggest impact. Awesome. That sounds great, Doug. And I, I like that analogy of, of Unipools kind of becoming synonymous with, with DEXs just as escalators <laughs> and moving stairs and Kleenex as yeah. tissues. But uh, yeah, thanks yeah, a lot, yeah, Doug. Good, uh, <laughs> this Thanks. has been such a fun conversation. Really enjoyed having you on today. And uh, you know, I guess there anything you want to leave the audience with, where they can find you, where they can learn more about Ambient? Yeah. Um, check us out at uh, ambient.finance or uh, follow our tw- Twitter at ambient underscore finance or follow my Twitter at, uh, at 0xDoug. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Doug. And uh, yeah, to the listeners, Doug's a great follow. So definitely be hitting him with a follow on Twitter. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it.